And good morning to all of you here in the sanctuary at Paznaz and those of you joining us online. Grateful to have all of you with us. I do want to just make one thing perfectly clear. These are not canned sloppy joes. People sometimes ask, what is the most common question pastors get? That's the most common question I've had this week. My family's recipe. So, show up or lose out. Your choice. I do want to draw your attention just for a moment to the middle panel of the worship folder. At the bottom, you'll see a banner headline that says Community Opportunity. It is my conviction that worship is not just occurring here in the sanctuary. It occurs as we live out life, as we live out life in the community. And it seems good to me from time to time to make our congregation aware of community opportunities to give expression to what we believe and how we worship with our lives and with the giving of our lives. And in this particular community opportunity, it focuses on developing affordable housing for the homeless. You may not be aware, but in Pasadena, there are over 600 homeless individuals that we have been able to account for. And it has long been part of the heart and the reach of Paznaz to care for the homeless. We do it every Sunday morning with Church in the Park. And so this week I participated in a Zoom call about this particular issue. And this particular issue is about the opportunity for churches that have excess property who have offered to build low-cost affordable housing for the homeless on their church sites. And the city of Pasadena is making it difficult for that to happen. And so there's an opportunity for us to lend our voice to that conversation. And so you'll see there an event this week that is happening. And if this is something that God would call you to engage in or to bring your voice to, I want to make you aware of that opportunity. Now, before the rumor mill starts, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? We don't have that kind of excess land because of a number of zoning issues. But that does not excuse us from participating in helping create solutions. And so I invite you to lean in to these kinds of opportunities. And so may God bless you as you respond to the call of God to care through worship of your life in important conversations like affordable housing for the homeless. This morning we come in our series, The Story, to the book of Jonah. And it's a remarkable story. It's only four chapters long, but it is full of provocation for us today. Helpful provocation for us today. But before we go there, let me just make you aware of a growing national problem. If you're a sports fan, 
there seems to be an increasingly loud conversation about the role of umpires and referees. In baseball, the big issue this year seems to be the number of bad calls by the umpires behind home plate who seem to call strikes when the ball is clearly way out of the strike zone. Are you aware of that national conversation? I just, it's a national problem. If you're a basketball fan, you may gnash your teeth when an NBA or college referee calls an unnecessary technical foul when a player has hurt their feelings. If you're a fan of American football, you have watched the videos of officials throwing penalty flags in error, but the official's bad call changes the outcome of the game. And the list goes on and on, depending on which sport you favor. In each case, the actions of the officials overshadowed the results of the game, and the official became the story rather than the game itself. In the video that you're about to see on the screen behind me, be sure to watch where the catcher tags the runner, and then we'll have a brief conversation about this particular egregious mistake by an umpire. Daniel McCutcheon and a ground ball to third, breaking for the plate, the throw, and they got him. No, he called him safe. He called him safe. Unbelievable. Jerry Meals called him safe. The throw beat him by a mile. That is incredible. How can you end? He called him safe. How can you end You've the game? You've got to be kidding me, Jerry Meals. That is that is unbelievable. The throw beat him by a mile. And he's saying that he wasn't tagged? That is unbelievable. Do you see why we have a national problem? Here's the rest of the story. This actually occurred in the year 2011 during a game between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Atlanta Braves. What makes this especially egregious, that call was in the 19th inning of a tie ball game. That run won the game. And this bad call became the story of the game. And so you ask, so what does this have to do with Jonah? We'll talk about that at the end of the sermon. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Jonah and let's read there chapter one, verses one through 17. I am reading from the New International Version. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All of the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. 
But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. May, maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified him and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word of the Lord. As one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament, the story of Jonah and the whale has been reproduced in children's musicals, TV movies and videos. Painters across the centuries have put paint to canvas attempting to replicate literal interpretations of Jonah and the whale or Jonah coming out of the whale on dry land. And these very memorable images of this book can create problems for us as we come to read it and to understand it. The very idea and seeming implausibility of Jonah being swallowed by a giant fish opened the door for us to focus on questions that really don't matter to the message of the book. Just think of the fish as a desert place that allows Jonah to reconsider his original response to God's direction, a place of isolation. Jonah being swallowed by a whale is no more remarkable than Philip being transported to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch or Saul, who became known as Paul, being interrupted on the road to Damascus by the voice in the presence of the Lord. Or, if you believe in the resurrection of Christ, we can believe the story here. After all, let the dramatic images of Jonah serve their purpose of highlighting God's commitment to the real story of grace and mercy. But Jonah, like all of us, and let me pause here for a moment. Jonah, like all of us, is a more complicated person than he appears to be in the book. All of you, not me, but all of you, are more complicated than you appear to be. I just make sloppy joes. 
But Jonah confronts us with the reality of how it is that someone who is a prophet of God can run away from the call of God and do the thing God asked them to do, and yet that's exactly what Jonah does. And so there's some things in this story we have to hold in tension with one another. Because just like as we care for each other, live life together with each other, we find things about each other that we have to hold in tension because we ask ourselves, how can I believe that about this person and yet experience that with this person? Anybody married? Okay, I won't go any further. People are complicated, and so is Jonah. But why in the world would Jonah flee from doing what God had asked him to do? It's a very important question. Jonah was a contemporary of Amos and Hosea, and Amos and Hosea were prophesying against King Jeroboam, against the misuse of authority, the misuse of the royal position of the king and the palace in the life of Israel. But we learn in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 25, that while Hosea and Amos were prophesying against Jeroboam, Jonah was speaking in favor of Jeroboam because Jeroboam was expanding the boundaries of Israel and so Jeroboam took a nationalist perspective, a political perspective with the king in supporting the king's agenda. And so it is that the original readers of Jonah would have been taken aback by the very idea that Yahweh would send a prophet with Jonah's political perspectives to Nineveh, the, cha the capital of Assyria, the very enemy of Israel that threatened everything whom Jonah had supported under Jeroboam. That contradiction matters to this story because we need to understand why Jonah went left when he should have turned right. Because sometimes in life, people turn left when they should have turned right. And so it is that we find that to be true with Jonah. You see, Assyria was the most feared terrorist country of Jonah's day. Assyria, as it conquered other nations and lands around it, did terrible, inhumane, torturous things to make sure that people had images of their control and they would not question the control of the Assyrians. They were very clearly what we would call today a terrorist country. And so it is into this mix of Jonah's perspectives on Israel and on Assyria that God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh because their wickedness has come to my attention and I want you to preach against that wickedness. And Jonah's response is not charitable for Jonas had lived in his context of what he hoped for his own country and how he felt about his own people. And so he took a position that diminished the needs of the Assyrians and their sinfulness and elevated his own people over their people. That's a very discomforting, uncomfortable realization 
In fact, it, it has made me squirm a little bit all week. But that's Jonah. And so it is in spite of Jonah's personal views when God calls him to a city and a people he detests, he decides to run away. He decides to move in the opposite direction as if he could run away from God. There's some kind of fallacy in that thinking. I'll let you figure it out. From what we know of Jonah's story, it is safe to say that Jonah's encounter with God as a prophet is different from the encounters recorded by every other Old Testament prophet. We've talked about these encounters. It's the pattern of the Old Testament prophetic literature. A prophet has an encounter with God, it shapes their ministry, it shapes their message, it shapes how they live out their life. And so the encounter with God shaped Jonah's message and shaped how he chose to live out his life and he chose to run away or attempt to run away. And so it is in verse three, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord and in the doing so, told the sailors why he was running away. We find in chapter two, Jonah's first confession. And when you read that confession, it's much like the confession of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son goes off, spends his father's wealth, ends up feeding pigs and says to himself, probably under the oversight of the Holy Spirit, even the servants in my father's house have more than I have to eat. I will go and ask forgiveness and ask to only be a servant. And the prodigal son returns home. And so is the chapter two confession of Jonah. And in chapter three, God gives Jonah direction a second time, and this time Jonah obeys the Lord. He goes to Nineveh. And in chapter four is Jonah's second confession. I have to tell you, as I read Jonah's second confession in chapter four, his frustration with the fact that the people of Nineveh responded to the message of God, and Jonah says to God, see, I told you they would listen to it, and they would hear the word and you would be compassionate to them and I'm angry because you are compassionate to them. That's a head scratcher. It should be for us. For if you follow the story of the prodigal son, that speech sounds very much like the speech of the older brother of the prodigal son. How is it you can celebrate his return and yet you've done nothing for me and I've been here all this time doing everything asked of me. It is the confession of a bitter spirit. And part of our challenge is that Jonah 4 ends that way. 
it is unresolved for us, as is the speech of the older son in the prodigal story. It is unresolved for us. We don't know what happens. We don't know if it gets worked out. We don't know if they go to therapy. We don't know what takes place. So what are we left with? We have articulated the complexity of this person called Jonah. We've articulated and are aware that clearly there's a call of God upon Jonah's life, but Jonah's got his own personal perspectives and he acts on those personal perspectives and creates complications. What are we left with? I think the reason that the story is unresolved is because God wants it to be clear that God's compassion for Nineveh is an expression of God's original intention for Israel. If we go back to the Exodus story, God says to Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests a holy nation for all of the nations of the world. But Israel gathered it all up and kept it to themselves and lost sight of God's intention to use Israel as a nation of priests. And so the call to go to Nineveh is a reminder to the Old Testament reader that God's plan was never just for Israel. It was for all people. God's love and mercy shatters our stereotypes of who may yet be blessed by God's grace and mercy. I I somehow love Jonah's surprise. Jonah, in his human understanding, believed no one would listen in Nineveh. Can I just say to us, the contemporary readers of this, let us take hope from that, friends. In all of the evil that exists in the world today, let us not lose hope that God's grace and mercy still changes hearts and minds and lives. And there is hope. And our call is to that hope not to be overcome by the evil that threatens in our minds to overwhelm us. For there is hope in following Jesus Christ. There is hope in turning away from sin and following Christ. There is hope to be had and life to be lived. And it will surprise us who listens and who responds to the grace and mercy of God. Oh, would we be a people that would love to be surprised more frequently. God's love and mercy extends beyond my personal, localized, or global preferences. This is July 4th weekend. I am thankful to be an American. However, 
The kingdom of God is greater, larger, broader, wider. The kingdom of God is global, is not restricted by national boundaries and constitutions. And the mind of the people of God are invited to be engaged with a God who is global. And Jonah being sent to the Gentiles of Assyria in the city of Nineveh is a forerunner of the gospel being spread to the Gentiles. It's a forerunner of Peter's vision on the rooftop when God comes to Peter and says, this is now clean. And Peter says, I never touch anything unclean. And God says, what I have called clean, do not call unclean. And the pattern of Jesus' life, Jesus engaged with the sinners, Jesus engaged with those considered lost by the Pharisees and by others, and yet there was Jesus in unexpected places with the Gentiles. Remember the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan? Jesus intentionally chose someone who was of a different race, a different nationality, to highlight the person who showed love. Yahweh is a global, loving, and compassionate God. And throughout this year-long series, we've seen time and time again how a loving God relentlessly pursues all of the people of God's creation. The book of Jonah reminds us that God's pursuit of love for people and societies goes beyond the community of believers. The question is not, is God at work beyond the community of believers? The question is, will we participate in the work of God beyond the community of believers? Even to those whom we may not consider within the reach of God's grace and mercy. When Jonah could have been celebrating God's compassion and grace and mercy. He chooses bitterness. And it reminds me that all of us, all of us in this sanctuary, watching this online, all of us are in need of the same grace and mercy as those who live outside of the faith of Christ. All of us. It's the same grace and mercy. The book of Jonah raises some fascinating questions for the contemporary believer. I'm gonna get on thin ice with some of you here. I know that. It's okay, you can write me, I'll read it even if you don't sign it. See, I backed up from my earlier statement a few months ago. Is there anything in my allegiance to the country of my birth, and we have many people from many different countries in this congregation, is there anything in my allegiance to the country of my citizenship that would prompt me to flee like Jonah from God's call of compassion and mercy, even when it extends to the enemies of the country of my citizenship? That's a really 
provocative question. Because the call of God is to be citizens of the kingdom of God first. Second, do we have a Nineveh? Do we have a place that we would not go even if God asked us to go? Third, does the complexity of Jonah, who is a reluctant prophet of God, reluctant to embrace God's directions, tell us anything about ourselves? What does or doesn't happen when you and I are reluctant or resistant to the call of God upon our lives to go? So what did the baseball video have to do with Jonah? Like the umpire whose bad call became the story of that game between the Braves and the Pirates, Jonah's bad call for refusing to go to Nineveh and spending three days in the belly of the great fish risks becoming the story and overshadowing the story of God's grace and mercy. Just like that video risks overshadowing this sermon. You'll have to make a choice today. Am I going to remember the video or am I going to remember the story about God's grace and mercy? See, in Jonah, the real story of God's acts of grace and mercy toward the people of Nineveh almost fades into the background. But God's grace and mercy is extended to Jonah through a second chance. God's unconditional love for all sinners was such a challenge to Jonah that God's grace and mercy revealed Jonah's racism, his nationalism, and his belief that God should only love Jonah's people. Jonah's anger over the repentance of the Ninevites is a statement that Jonah's own spiritual development is an incomplete work. In other words, there's more work to do by the Spirit of God. There's more work for the Spirit of God to do in me. And I'll just say, it's a safe thing. If there's more work for the Spirit of God to do in me, then he's got some work to do for some of y'all. Some of you got it all figured out. If you do, there's more work to be done, isn't there? <laughs> you know what I love about this book? This book is about the grace and mercy of God, his compassion to those who we may be, who we may believe are beyond the reach of God and they're not. God's love, mercy, compassion, and grace extends to all. Never discount the work of God in someone's life. Never be surprised who shows up at these doors. Someone shows up at these doors and you know their life story, don't tell it. 
don't ask some form of the question, what are you doing here? It's a wrong question. If you know their story and it's wicked and sinful, greet them and say, thanks be to God, because if they show up, it's probably a sign that the work of the Holy Spirit is taking place and has drawn him to this place, and they're looking for someone to represent God's compassion and grace and mercy and love, and let that be us. And if you know this story, don't tell it. Don't repeat it. Don't be the gossip. Trust and believe in the story of God's work of the Holy Spirit in their life, drawing them into this place, and believe that they will have a new story to tell. Because you have been hospitable, and you are a sworn representative of the grace and mercy and compassion of God, and you are going to live that out and be a part of a greater story. You see, Jonah doesn't get to decide who receives God's grace and mercy. Only God does. One pastor said this, who we refuse to love unconditionally as God loves reveals who we really are. Who we refuse to love unconditionally as God loves reveals who we really are. Thomas Merton said it this way, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. So here's the closing question before we share the sacrament together. What will the story of our lives be remembered for? If you were to write four chapters about your life like someone wrote about Jonah, what would your story be remembered for? I encourage us to live lives that are remembered for powerful images of God's grace and mercy, that we would be remembered as a people and as persons of God's grace and mercy above all else. Thanks be to God. I invite you to take your communion elements and prepare to receive them. This bread and this cup that I hold in my hands is an invitation to a life that allows the story of God's grace and mercy to move to the forefront of our lives. The bread and the cup. Are the symbols of God's desire to move his grace and mercy to the forefront of our lives. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. 
in remembrance of my sacrifice for you. Again, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup, said, this is my blood shed for you, shed for the forgiveness and the remission of your sins. Take it and drink all of it and be thankful. Oh God, as we have received the bread and the cup on this day, may you stamp upon our hearts and minds the gifts of your grace and mercy, of your love and compassion toward us, that they may be in the forefront of our lives and they may be the story of our lives as they were the story of Jesus' life. We give you thanks for the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, would you stand please and receive this benediction? And now may the grace and mercy of God go with you and go before you. May it be the statement of your life upon, above all other statements you would want to make. And may you be the people of God to the world that God has created. Go now. With blessing and hope, you are dismissed.